If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, Prosperity is God's Idea. Since the Bible talks more about money than any other subject, it must be important. This season is devoted to this all-important area of the Bible, which has such a profound effect upon us. Thank God for the Word. It provides us with revelation truth concerning God's view on money. There's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding concerning what the Christian perspective on finances should be. The goal of this season is to provide a framework of practical principles and applications to live by. Ignorance in this all-important area of our life is costly. So let's go for the gold, God's highest and best for our lives, and for the furtherance of the gospel throughout the world, blessed to be a blessing. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 15 Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand, so that we may Preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So why is prosperity God's idea in the first place? Well, number one, it's an expression of the heart of God to his creation. Number two, it brings glory to his name. And number three, it funds his kingdom on the earth. James 1.16 Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. He does not change like shifting shadows. So why is prosperity such an important subject to us as Christians? Well, number one, in order to survive on earth, we need to prosper in order for our human needs to be met. Number two, to siphon money from the world system into God's kingdom. And number three, experience the joys of giving and being a partner, a vessel and steward for God. Acts 20.35 In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. 
remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So why does the devil fight the subject of Christian prosperity so much? Well, the enemy does not want God's covenant and the purpose for mankind to be established. The devil is covetous, and it chafes him to see God's people being blessed. And remember, money is power, and the devil does not want that power in the hands of God's children. We are so blessed to be living under the new covenant, where we can give and receive God's highest best for our lives by His grace. Therefore, our giving is as the Spirit leads us, rather than by the law. Galatians 5.18 But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. We are going to see clearly in this episode that prosperity is the will of God for His children. So if you want to know God's will on any subject, let's read His will in His Word. Suppose a lady should say, My husband who is very rich, has passed away. I wish I knew whether he left me anything in the will. I would say to her, why don't you read the will and find out? The word testament, legally speaking, means a person's will. The Bible contains God's last will and testament, in which he bequeaths to us all the blessings of redemption. And since it's his last will and testament, anything submitted later is a forgery. A person never writes a new will after they're dead. If prosperity is God's will for us, then to say that prosperity is of the past or under the old covenant is virtually saying what is the opposite of the truth, that a will is no good after the death of the tester. Jesus is not only the tester who died, he was resurrected and is also the mediator of that will. Jesus is our lawyer, so to speak, and he will not beat us out of the will as some earthly lawyers do. He is our representative at the right hand of the Father God. It seems that the new covenant, like the old covenant, makes God's people rich. Proverbs 10.22 in the Amplified, The blessing of the Lord, it makes truly rich, and he adds no sorrow with it, neither does toiling increase it. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. Now suppose a billionaire were to appear before an audience of a thousand people with the announcement that he was able to give each one a million dollars. This would be no basis for any faith for a million dollars because faith cannot rest on ability alone. If he should go further and say, I will give 50 of you a million dollars each, even then, There is no basis for anyone in the audience to have faith for the million dollars. Were you to ask one of them if he or she were fully assured of receiving a million dollars from the billionaire? The answer would be, I need the money and I hope I'm among the lucky ones, but I cannot be sure. But should the billionaire say, it is my will to give all of you a million dollars each, then everyone in the audience would have a basis for faith. It's a sure thing. No more guesswork. Everyone would undoubtedly say to the rich man, Thank you, I'll take my money now. Since faith begins where the will of God is known, and God's word is God's will, it would behoove us to study the Bible, open the will, and find out what is included in our inheritance in Jesus. 1 John 5.14 Now, prosperity under the Old Covenant is where we're going to begin. We're going to look at a few examples of financial prosperity in the lives of God's covenant children in the Old Testament. This should provide a good comparison point for Christians today, living under the New Testament with better promises under a better covenant. 
So if the Old Testament saints had it good materially living under their covenant, how much more should we expect God's will under the new covenant to be even better? Beware of a poverty spirit. There's been a scourge to the body of Christ over the last few centuries concerning religious traditions of men that poverty and godliness go hand in hand. In other words, God purposely holds his children back from becoming rich in order to keep them humble. The notion espouses that to be Christ-like and financially secure are at odds with each other. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just like Paul's thorn in the flesh, religious folks read into this scripture things that are not there. Money itself is not evil. It's the love of it that gets folks into trouble. The big danger of having a poverty attitude is that it makes us beggars and whiners. It also causes us to shrink back from God and faith because of an inferiority complex, condemnation, and fear. God does not mind his children being rich. He just does not want us to be covetous and sink things instead of seeking first his kingdom. We need money to finance the Great Commission and build his kingdom. What a tremendous witness and testimony to the world when they see God's children well taken care of. Deuteronomy 8.18 But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to our forefathers as it is today. Proverbs 13.22 A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. The generation of Job and Abraham did not know anything other than God blessing them financially. You can't sell that old lie of the devil that God brings poverty on us to keep us humble to the Jewish folks, because their Bible does not say that, neither does ours. The source of that kind of teaching partly came from Zen Buddhism through the study of Eastern religion by European people at the turn of the 19th century. That philosophy worked its way down from there and started a trend of poverty vows and poverty oaths, which are not in the Bible nor a part of the New Covenant but is actually in violation of the covenant. Then it came over into North America. Beware of this poverty spirit of religious piety to try to stay humble. It's just the devil trying to steal from God's children and keep finances out of God's kingdom. Yet on the other hand, watch out for the spirit of materialism and consumerism that is so pervasive in our society that detracts from God's kingdom priorities. Certainly, the Bible condemns greed and we will expand on that point later on. Colossians 2.18 Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it? Do not submit to its rules. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, there is such a thing as false humility, and we need to understand that poverty is a curse. 
it is not a blessing. Even common sense will tell you that. Since the scriptures are quite explicit about God's people enjoying abundance in their lives, to believe to the contrary is simply biblical ignorance. Religion is man-made traditions contrary to the scripture. So when it comes right down to it, the greatest hindrance that we have standing in our way of experiencing God's full prosperity in our lives is getting our souls to prosper and become renewed in this area. Overcoming the lies and deception of religious ideology passed down from generation to generation. Overcoming a poverty spirit or a poverty mentality, we need to say, I'll never be broke another day of my life. Now our heads will fight us on this because of the traditions of men in this area, passed down to us from one generation to another. Poverty mentality is this, I'm not going to have enough. I'm going to run out, or I don't know where it's going to come from. It just boils down to faith versus fear. Job 36.16 He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. Nehemiah 9.21 For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 7 For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Psalms 37.25 I was young, and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Psalms 35.27 Let them shout for joy and be glad, who favor my righteous cause, and let them say continually, Let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. So if God takes pleasure in the prosperity of his children, for us to fear and worry about need is a lack of faith, and that is sin, according to Romans 14.23, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. God is our source, and he has billions of channels he can use to get it to us if we will just believe him. God's will for us is that we never experience lack, become behind, and have need. Sure, experience or even present reality may dictate that we have been behind on our bills, had things repossessed, gone in foreclosure, and even filed for bankruptcy. Well, we have also sinned by not walking in love and failed to obey God in other areas of our life. But we repent, get up, and keep pressing for the mark, forgetting what is behind. God is a God of new beginnings, new mercies, and fresh starts. He is extending his hand out to us to try again, to trust him, and take him at his word. So let's get our mouth in line with the word. Do our words make any difference in what happens in our life? Emphatically, yes. Philippians 3.13 Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Lamentations 3.22 Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Now for the poverty mentality test. Let's see how much of this poverty and scarcity thinking is in us. It's not hard for God to get money to us. We are the ones who hinder the flow of God in our lives. It's all up to what we believe. It's not according to the ability of God, but according to our faith and our vision to expect great things from God. Let's get free from small thinking. What is prosperity mentality? I'll always have more than enough. Poverty mentality is bills will come up, but the money won't be there. So number one, do we save, keep, and hold on to everything? Do we keep stuff long after it's worn out? Do we have tons of stuff that we have not used in years and years, like a pack rat? Do we struggle to turn things loose? Why do we keep all those things anyway? Usually fear, just in case we need it. It's one thing to be a good steward and avoid waste, but it's another thing to be hoarding out of fear. Proverbs 11.24 One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Acts 5 verse 1 Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now the second test to see if we have a poverty mentality is do we always have to clean the plate and eat it all until there is nothing left, eating like there is no tomorrow? How about rinsing the shampoo bottle with water three times before breaking out a new one? Like water in the old ketchup bottle trick. That is a poverty mentality when it's excessive. Like keeping one year of survival food in fear of bad times. Why should we be expecting problems and lack or to fall on hard times? Well, someone might say we're trying to be prepared, but there's a fine line between being prepared and getting into fear. Now, if the Lord leads us to put some money aside, fine. Let's not get into fear, though. Do we calculate the 15% tip to the last penny? Let's get beyond being stingy, narrow, and limited. Here's another one. Do we consider God filling our cup to running over as being wasteful? Number three, are we occasionally, frequently, or always complaining about how much things cost? Commenting about the cost of living, paying taxes, and complaining about paying bills But when is it ever okay to complain according to the Bible? Never. Here is a phrase I want us to eliminate from our vocabulary. Please do not say it again. We can't afford it. When we say this, we are trusting only in ourselves. Well, what about God? Can he afford it? Saying we can't afford things teaches our kids not to trust God and builds a poverty mentality. Let's teach our kids to sow and pray the prayer of agreement, and believe God for the increase. Why do so many Christian parents not pray with their children for things? Maybe they're afraid that little Johnny or Susie will be disappointed. Obviously, we don't believe it ourselves. Philippians 2.14 Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life. Mark 9.21 From childhood he answered, It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. 
If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Now number four, are we always trying to get it for less or for free? Do we bug the salesperson and wear them down excessively, bargaining, bugging them and pleading and dickering with them down to next to nothing? It's fine if people offer us a great deal because we believed God for favor, but we should not begrudge the salesperson for making something on it. Do we have a compulsive disorder to collect coupons? Beware of asking for Christian discounts. This is for the church. Can't you give us a better deal? Or these are the orphans' cheaps. And here's an oldie but a goodie. Well, I'm a Christian brother. Can't you come down and help me out? Do rich people talk like that? Do we burn a tank of gas to save $5 by driving to the other side of town? Sometimes it can be a good witness to pay full price, to be a blessing, and to show people God is not broke, but always be led by the Holy Spirit. Number five, do we not even bother to look at the highest priced items that are on sale? The mentality is that those expensive things are for somebody else. If God can't get us to see ourselves in it, he can't get it to us. Vision is so important. Faith needs a target or a goal, something specific to shoot for. The challenge is not God doing it for us, but seeing ourselves receiving it. Can we see ourselves writing those big checks for the offering? Have you ever written a $10,000 check to the church? We will never do it until we first see ourselves doing it first. How about seeing a missionary need and go ahead and buy it for them? We must see it first. But one may say, But I'm on a fixed income and I can't. Now you're just going to have to stop cussing. Just quit it. Say it out loud. I am rich. I am rich in Jesus' name. Blessed to be a blessing. Hebrews 11.1 in the Amplified. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of the reality, faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Now here's a real good one. Number six, are we bothered by what other people spend, have, or do? Does it bother us? Do we think it is wasteful for someone to spend $10,000 for a watch? Just think what they could do on the mission field with that kind of money. Well, that sounds good and pious to say that, doesn't it? But do we know who that actually sounds like? Judas. People who talk this way are envious and jealous, hypocrites, judgmental, and critical. We don't know if that was something the Lord wanted to bless them with. Who are we to accuse them of being wasteful or a bad steward? Are we giving all we can to the poor? If not, then we should keep our mouths shut. If we are giving 50% of our income to God, and then someone comes along not even giving 10%, judges us on the nice things we have believed for, how dare them? What business is it of theirs? If I have five vacation homes and 25 cars... I am outdoing what they are for the kingdom of God. Remember, God wants us rich. He does not want us to be covetous. So if I sow big, should I not reap big? If God uses someone to bless me with something big, should I feel bad and apologize for it? No. We will never prosper in our life if we have issues with others prospering and judging them, finding fault and talking about it. Why should the ungodly have all the best things in life? We should be thankful and praise God when we see our fellow Christians blessed. Lord, give them more. And why is that? Because there's also plenty for us. We are in the same blessing line. John 12.1 Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived. 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 1 Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Proverbs 13.22 A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. We need to work on more mind renewal with the word of God. We need to become as comfortable to say I am rich as I am saved. Let's try that right now. Say this out loud. My father's will is that I become rich, having a full supply that just keeps running over with all kinds of good gifts, lots of money and material blessings. Now, did you cringe when you said that? Did your mind throw up some red flags? Now be honest. If so, then this teaching material is definitely for you because the Bible talks more about money as a topic than anything else. It's not all on the negative side either. But some will say with a pious voice, well, we should just be content with going to heaven and not expect much in this life. You are just pushing a prosperity gospel. Well, that's right. It was and still is God's idea that we prosper. Everything about salvation is prosperous in nature when we examine it in the Bible. Our whole problem has been a lack of expectation and according to our lack of faith. We are likewise lacking in the financial arena. God's will is that we enjoy heaven here on earth before we even get there. Matthew 6.10 I love Psalms chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I would like to bring to our remembrance the table that the Lord has prepared for us in the midst of our enemies, like sickness, poverty, oppression, fear, and the like, in Psalms 23.5. The table of the Lord is full of healing, life, forgiveness, prosperity, peace, joy, and so much more. Suppose in the name of trying to be humble, a believer approaches this banquet table sheepishly and apologetically, only taking a couple of scoops from the plate of forgiveness, and that's it. Looking next to him, he sees one of those full gospel folks just digging in. I mean, he is taking huge helpings of everything on that salvation table. He just wants to try everything. 
Meanwhile, our religious brother looks forlornly at his meager sampling. In jealousy, he begins to chide his other brother for being greedy, arrogant, and selfish, to presume that he can help himself to the master's table and partake of whatever and as much as he wants. He tells him, What? Do you think all this is for your benefit? You need to show some restraint, brother. First prove your loyalty to the Lord and suffer lack, sacrifice, and suffer hunger and pain for the master. Who do you think you are? Just then the Lord interrupts and says to this pious one, Who told you to carry that burden of sin and the curse that I could only bear for humanity? Why are you shrinking back from what I have provided for your benefit and cost me everything? It is right and proper to be excited as a little child and jump in and enjoy the salvation I have richly provided for you. Certainly, the Bible teaches us to be content and thankful for what we have. And I'm not condoning that we raise up disciples of Christ who are only interested in themselves, who are spoiled and self-centered. What I'm endeavoring to do here is present the truth as the Word of God presents it and trying to avoid the ditches on both sides of the road, a poverty spirit and self-indulgence. God is glorified and pleased when His children enjoy the good life that He has provided for us in salvation. Just as natural parents derive immense pleasure and satisfaction when they see their children enjoying the good life provided for them, so let's approach the table of the Lord with boldness and confidence and dig into all that God's salvation entails. Taste it all. Have seconds and thirds. Really, don't stop eating. No apologies. No excuses and no denying oneself for the sake of religious piety. Also be sure to take some to go and give it to others so that they can get an appetite for the things of God and take their place at the table of the Lord. Psalms 34, 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 2 Corinthians 6 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 4 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, according to 1 Timothy 6.17. The same God who by His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, in 2 Peter 1.3. I am convinced that many Christians, when they get to heaven, will realize that religion had cheated them out of so much legitimate blessings from God. This example reminds me of the reaction of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. The older son represents the faithful Christian who serves the Lord faithfully for years. However, when he or she sees other Christians who may have been uncommitted get healed, it chafes them. They get all bent out of shape and mad, thinking God owes them something. However, they fail to realize that the promises of God have been provided as a gift and so must be received by faith. Good works does not get us saved, nor do they get us healed or prospered. Only faith in God's word appropriates the provision of God in one's life. Notice how the father pleads with his older son in the story. Everything I have is yours. In other words, all you had to do is ask. According to John 16, 24, 
Jesus said, ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. Everything the older brother wanted or needed was already at his fingertips. It's not the father's fault if his son does not take advantage of what already belongs to him. Luke 15.25 Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you have killed the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Examples of Old Covenant Prosperity The Bible is divided into two divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The more proper name for these two divisions, however, is covenant. So the Bible really is a story of an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Now, in the Bible, the word covenant means a binding agreement between two parties. It actually means to cut covenant. By definition, it is an agreement to cut a covenant by the shedding of blood and walking between pieces of flesh. So the two divisions in the Bible are about an old blood covenant and a new blood covenant. So let's first look at Abraham. We see through scripture that God entered into blood covenant with Abraham as a vehicle for the establishment of a nation of covenant people in preparation for the coming of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Of course, that's talking about Jesus. The people of God, the nation of Israel, were to be a light to the nations and to be God's ambassadors on the earth to the Gentile world. Just as the church of Jesus Christ is today with the gospel during this new covenant dispensation we live in today. The matter of blood covenant is very pertinent to the subject of prosperity. The first covenant recorded in the Bible was between God and Adam and Eve. When an animal was slain and its skin was used as a covering for them in Genesis 3.21. Job had a covenant with God, a life-keeping covenant. He was delivered from his troubles when he finally got his mind on his covenant instead of his problems. We can't get anything from God with self-pity, which is really selfishness in manifestation. God cut covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. The subject of blood covenant is huge in the Bible. Without it, there would be no salvation for mankind, period. A covenant of blood, or the covenant of strong friendship, for example, Abraham through blood covenant became the friend of God. The covenant God cut with Abraham was a covenant of strong friendship, but the covenant Jesus cut on our behalf was a covenant of adoption into the family of God, which is a much stronger covenant relationship. The Hebrews had a blood covenant ritual that was similar to the other nations around them. All nations practiced blood covenant because mankind instinctively sought this relationship. So this practice was not unique to the Hebrews. So what are some reasons people enter into covenant? Well, number one, protection. A covenant partner is bound to come to your aid when in trouble. Number two, provision. What is yours is mine, and what is mine is yours. Number three, posterity. Descendants 
are covered and benefit from that relationship. And number four, relationship. A deep love, devotion, and respect for each other. Since a blood covenant was a lifetime commitment, it was very ritualistic in nature in order to press home the finality and seriousness of the matter, like marriage is supposed to be. In one of the last steps in sealing the covenant between two parties, they stand before witnesses and give the terms of the covenant. I say, all my assets are yours, all my money, all my property, and all my possessions are yours. If you need any of them, you don't have to ask, just come and get it. These terms are referred to as the law of the covenant. Marriage between believers is a covenant relationship between God, sealed in blood, which is then consummated in the marriage bed. The couple share everything from having the same last name to accessing the same checking account and filing a joint income tax return. 1 Corinthians 3.21 So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. And if I die, all my children are yours by adoption, and you are responsible for my family. But at the same time, you also get all my liabilities. If I ever get in trouble financially, I don't have to ask you for money. I will come to you and say, where's your checkbook? We are in covenant. Everything I have is yours, and what's yours is mine, both assets and liabilities. So we stand there and read off before witnesses our list of assets and liabilities. That is exactly what Jesus did for us. He took on our sin liabilities so we would be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus became sick with our sicknesses so we would be healed. He also took on our financial liabilities so we would be made rich with his glorious riches. We understand all this as Jesus' great substitutionary act of redemption to ransom us from Satan's authority. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.4 Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Philippians 4.19 And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All this is made possible through the instrument of blood covenant. So the reason Abraham was made righteous before God, healed, protected, and made rich, is the same reasons we are today as Christians, blood covenant. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, The blood covenant is a very sacred covenant. It is the most sacred covenant that mankind has ever known or have ever adhered to. Dr. Livingston and Mr. Stanley were in Africa for many years as missionaries, and in all that time, they never heard of a covenant being broken. So let's look at some passage of scripture that point out Abraham's financial earnings in the covenant. 
Genesis 13.1 So Abram went from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Genesis 13 verse 5 Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them. While they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Genesis 15.1 After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Genesis 24.34 So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, men's servants and maidservants, and camels and donkeys. Abraham was rich materially only because of his covenant relationship with God, not because he was special or God was showing him partiality or some rare occurrence or fluke event. So if we now have a better covenant with God through Jesus Christ than what Abraham had, what is the obvious conclusion? At a minimum, we should be as rich as he was. Our expectations have been way too low in this matter. Hebrews 7.22 Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.6 But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. But you know, some will say, yeah, but I'm not rich like Abraham. Well, that's not God's fault. It's in the covenant. If we would just learn how to exercise our rights and cash in on what Jesus has already paid for in blood for us to have, we would be eating the best of the land. Jesus had rebuked the religious leaders for not teaching the people about healing in the covenant of Abraham, so people were needlessly suffering sickness. On the same token, couldn't people also be needlessly suffering under the curse of poverty as well? Is that God's will? Just because people go without is no indication that such an absence validates God's will as being done in one's life. It just means they're being ripped off through ignorance or a lack of faith or disobedience. Luke 13, 16. Jesus said, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? Romans 3, 3. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's now look a little bit at Isaac. Like his father Abraham, Isaac was in covenant with God and was enjoying the same benefits. Genesis 26:12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Notice when Isaac was well advanced in years, the time came for him to pass on a blessing before he died. As you know, Jacob impersonated his brother Esau and received it instead. Genesis 27:28. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Genesis 28.3 May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase in your numbers, 
until you have become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Now we look at Jacob. No surprise that Jacob did very well in the prosperity arena as his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham did. However, Esau hated his brother because of his deception and its success. Esau resolved to murder him, only waiting until the death of his father Isaac. Rebekah informed Jacob of Esau's intent and advised him to flee to her brother Laban in Haran, obtaining Isaac's consent by saying that he wished Jacob to marry one of his kinswomen and not a daughter of Canaan. Isaac blessed Jacob again and sent him away in Genesis chapter 27 verse 41 to chapter 28 verse 5. Now on his journey to Laban, Jacob stopped at Luz for the night and had a vision of a ladder where angels were ascending and descending on it. There God confirmed to him the promises given to his fathers and promised to protect him on his journey and provide a safe return home. Genesis 28 verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back into this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now arriving at Haran, Jacob met Rachel, Laban's daughter, by whom Jacob's coming was made known to her father. After a month, Laban inquired what wages Jacob desired for his services, and he asked for Rachel's hand in marriage on the condition of seven years of service. At the expiration of the time, which seemed to Jacob but a few days because of his love for her, Laban availed himself to the customs of the country and substituted his elder daughter Leah for Rachel. Upon the discovery of the deception, Laban excused himself by saying, It's not the practice in our land to marry off the younger before the firstborn. So another seven years of service from Jacob was required for his beloved Rachel. After Jacob's fourteen years had expired, he was induced by Laban to remain six years longer for the purpose of acquiring wealth. Jacob made a deal with Laban that for his wages, Jacob would take into his possession all the sheep that were speckled or spotted and every dark-covered lamb. Genesis 30 verse 20. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. Now for a little payback. Jacob comes up with a fascinating plan. He takes fresh-cut branches of poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. He placed these branches near every watering trough and near the sheep when they mated, and the results were astounding. Genesis 30:38. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs, so they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches. 
and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves. He even went so far as to only set strips of wood in front of the stronger females when they were in heat, but if the females were weak, he did not place them there. I have to give it to Jacob. He was crafty. Genesis thirty forty two. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maid servants and men servants and camels and donkeys. I see a great lesson of faith in this, calling those things that be not. In Romans 4.17, Jacob called for what he wanted, spotted sheep, and he got it. I believe that God gave him this insight in keeping with the covenant to make Jacob wealthy. Apparently, Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times, according to Genesis 31.7. Yet when the wage was changed to spotted sheep, the young were born spotted. When the wage was changed to streaked sheep, the young were streaked. God confirmed this with a dream in Genesis chapter 31, verse 10 through 13. Now we come to Joseph. As you know, Jacob had 12 sons. He became the clan leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was sold as a slave due to the envy of his brothers and wound up in Egypt as a servant of a man named Potiphar. Joseph behaved himself so discreetly in the service of Potiphar and was so led by God that he found great favor with his master, who gave him the direction of all his affairs. We see again how God gives favor, wisdom, and success to those in covenant with him. Genesis 39 verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Even before the Ten Commandments were given, Joseph understood that adultery was wicked. He refused the seductive invitations of his master's wife. And for his integrity, he gets into trouble. Genesis chapter 39 verse 6 through 20. Even in prison, God made Joseph to prosper and have success in everything he did. God gave him tremendous favor. You just can't keep a covenant person down. God was with Joseph, granting him favor in the eyes of the governor of the prison, so that he entrusted all the prisoners to his care, leaving everything to his supervision. Genesis 39.20 But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph was able to interpret dreams by revelation from God, which made the way for him to become second in command next to Pharaoh. You know the story. There was to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. During the seven years of plenty, Joseph prepared for the years of famine that were to follow by carefully husbanding the grain, which was so abundant, as to be beyond measurement. Since the famine hit the land of Canaan hard, Jacob and his family were greatly affected. To make a long story short, Jacob learned that Joseph 
was indeed alive and was directed by the Lord to move to Egypt. Through Joseph, the Lord saved Jacob's family from starvation and so preserved the covenant promise given to Abraham. Genesis 46 verse 2 And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now concerning the nation of Israel, Jacob's family upon arriving in Egypt was very small, only 70 in all. Yet 400 years later, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will have multiplied to a few million. Genesis 15 verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. The Lord is so good. He made sure that the Israelites had received their back wages for four hundred years of hard labor in Egypt. The scriptures say that the Israelites had plundered the Egyptians. That reminds me of Proverbs 13.22, which states, A sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Exodus 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Get up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, We will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So in recap, we learned how God confirmed his covenant with Abraham by promising to come to the earth and cut the covenant through the seed, singular, of Abraham, talking about Jesus. But first, Abraham's descendants would be in bondage for 400 years, according to Genesis 15, verse 13 to 36, in a strange land, Egypt. But this is a blood covenant that God must honor. He must bring them out of bondage into the promised land. How God remembered the covenant is recorded in Exodus chapters 2 and 3. Exodus 2.23 states, In the course of those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help, and their cry under bondage came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later God miraculously appeared to Moses to reveal his plan for deliverance in Exodus 3.6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
Now, when we talk about the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. The place is Kadesh Barnea on the outskirts of the promised land. At last, the people of Israel are on the verge of entering into their land flowing with milk and honey. This is the same land that God had promised Abraham for his descendants to inherit. After all this time, God's promise was about to be manifested. This is one of the great Old Covenant stories, for it teaches volumes on the principles of faith. Hebrews 11.8 By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It appears that Moses initially told the folks to just go straight in and take possession of what God had promised. But the people wanted to send in spies first, one leader from each tribe to explore the land of Canaan. 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel. That decision to hesitate will cost them dearly. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eschol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. I love how Moses told the people, Go for it, reach out and take hold of what belongs to you, that which God has graciously promised on oath to your forefathers. Notice he said, don't be afraid or discouraged. These are the same stumbling blocks we have to deal with today when it comes to us entering into our new covenant promised land. Satan will try to use circumstances, fear, and intimidation to get you and me to back down from receiving our blood-bought inheritance in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the days of King Solomon. The glory days of Israel during the reign of Solomon were meant to last for all times. The Lord was showcasing the nation to the world as a people who were in covenant with God. This visible display of power, wisdom, and great riches lured people from all nations to find out the secret to their great success. It was the Lord, of course. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21 All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone came and brought a gift articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore, fig trees in the foothills. 
Oh, the incredible potential they had of blessing and protection to be God's special people on the earth if they would have just obeyed his commands. That was it. Simple, right? Sad to say, the majority of the history of Israel was that of tragedy, oppression, and lack. It was not because God had failed or changed his mind. The people were unfaithful, adulterous, and a rebellious nation. They opened the door to Satan time and time again to come in and kill, steal, and destroy them. Deuteronomy 7.11 Therefore take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. As God's covenant people under a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ, we have the same potential to display the awesome and mighty works of God, but we also are liable to fall under the same snares and traps of the enemy if we do not stay alert. 1 Corinthians 10.6 Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. In Proverbs 14.34 it states, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. America and Canada has experienced such prosperity and quality of life because it was originally founded as a Christian nations, rooted in biblical principles. Other nations that are struggling to develop are not short on natural resources and potential. It is the forces of darkness through false religions and ignorance of Jesus that impedes them. Sadly, North America is in decline as she abandons her Christian roots. Good Gifts from a Good God It saddens me to say that the goodness of God is not fully settled in Christians' minds. There seems to be some lingering doubts that our Lord withholds and afflicts us for our ultimate good. Religious ideology has done much to tarnish and obscure the accurate biblical view that God is a good God all the time. Certainly, there are many aspects to God's nature and character. He is a holy God who does execute judgment and punishment on the wicked. He also disciplines his children according to Hebrews chapter 12. However, the manner in which discipline is carried out is primarily through his word and the lessons we learn when we fail to repent. Thus, reaping the consequences of our own actions when we open the door to the devil. I make this little clarification in order to avoid being generalized and branded into a narrow view of God, that he is a feel-good, candy-man-like deity who is only interested in giving his children goodies. Scripture reveals that the Father God is primarily interested in our character development and spiritual maturity, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. And yes, all of us believers in Jesus Christ will have to stand before his judgment seat one day to give an account of our lives on earth. Our greatest passion in this life should be to live a life so that one day we hear the Master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. However, the scope of this teaching material is on the subject of prosperity as it pertains to redemption, and for obvious reasons, the mere subject draws attention to the goodness of God in our lives to meet our every need. Therefore, our central focus will be upon this theme, which does not diminish all the other aspects of our great and awesome God. Our view of our Heavenly Father, whether true or false, will have tremendous effect on our relationship with Him and our ability to receive from Him and from His hand. If we have had abusive dads on this earth, more than likely our perception of God will be distorted. If we have been intimidated, belittled, and unloved by our earthly father, 
we may be suffering from what I call the Oliver Twist Syndrome. This story of an orphan boy whose childhood was marked by dominating males. He suffered from an inferiority complex that conformed him into a beggar. He was still hungry and wanted some more gruel, which is soup. Please, sir, may I have some more? When we approach our Heavenly Father like Oliver, begging, pleading, groveling, and slobbering at the throne of grace, that is not being humble or reverent. That is really ignorance in light of the scripture. So instead of fogging up the window and looking in from the cold, let's open the door and sit at the master's table and dig into our glorious redemption and precious promises he has freely given us. Now it's up to us to take possession and claim this new covenant promised land. Let's come boldly to his throne of grace. If we shrink back for whatever reason, it's not God's fault. We need to grow up and stop expecting God to spoon feed us all the time. Let's mature and learn how the kingdom of God operates and maximize this mighty redemption for God's glory. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There are generally two reasons why an earthly father will be pleased with his child. The first reason is based on performance, how the child behaves and how he grows and develops over time. When his child's morality work ethic, and overall disposition are positive, the father will tend to have a more positive attitude toward him. The second reason, and more importantly, why an earthly father loves his child is simply because he's his child, the fruit of his loins. This kind of love goes much deeper than his child's performance, looks, skills, intelligence, or success. However, this is still natural human love and is very limited in scope. Matthew chapter 7, 9. Jesus said, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus is setting aside the stigma of the perverted fatherly role model of this earth that is domineering and insensitive to a child's needs. God is our Father. He loves it when we try to please him just as he loved it when Jesus sought to please him. In this sense, in regards to God's words, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased, can only apply to us when we choose to follow the way that God has set before us. 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. However, it is more fundamentally true that our Father in heaven loves us simply because we are his children. His love for us doesn't grow or fade based on what we do or don't do. Separation from God as a result of our disobedience may cloud our view of his love, but it doesn't diminish it. God's love is still there, as powerful as ever. So when we repent, according to 1 John 1 9, we will find that he is still there waiting for us. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9, we are told that God is the father of our spirit. In Christ, we've been born into his family and we have the right to call him Abba Father, which means Daddy Daddy, according to Romans 8.15. Let's read that. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. He may be God to the world, but he is Father to me. John chapter 1 verse 12. 
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. With all the absentee fathers in our country's homes today, the spirit of abandonment runs rampant. The statistics for teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide and dropout rates are significantly higher in single-family homes. But oh, what a promise we have in God the Father. Psalms 68.5 He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sits the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus himself said that he would never leave us in Matthew 28.20, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Even when we are faithless, sin and blow it in our Christian lives, he remains faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. We serve a good God, full of mercy and overflowing with compassion. We can always count on the Lord. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Mark 1.40 A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Psalms 103 verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Mark 6.34 When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. If Jesus was compassionate towards the sinner, the sick, and the demon-possessed, it's not much of a leap of faith to connect the dots into seeing in Scripture that he is also compassionate concerning our finances or perhaps the lack thereof. Notice in Mark 6.34 that the Lord's compassion for the multitude was to teach the word of God. Not only did Jesus on occasion feed the multitude bread and fish, but more often than that, he taught them. This makes sense when we understand that it's the truth that makes us free. In the body of Christ today, there needs to be a greater revelation that God is a good God all the time. Good God versus bad devil. Simple theology that keeps the record straight. When we mix the two and confuse God with what the devil does alone through trials, tests, and temptations, we are in trouble. When it pertains to Christians, the Lord is about giving life and the devil is about taking it. Never shall the two entwine. John 10.10 The very ministry of Jesus was a deliberate showcase of deliverance and freedom for all mankind, for every area of their lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus quoted from a messianic prophecy concerning himself in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Besides being born into God's family, which is the greatest miracle of the new covenant, 
What would good news mean for the poor, I wonder? That's right, they don't have to be poor anymore. Financial prosperity is God's idea and is part of our redemption. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. As soon as we get our thinking straightened out in this area of God wanting his children to be prosperous, blessed, and even rich, the sooner we will experience the reality of his redemptive provision for our lives. Please don't take my word on it. The Bible is full of passages that explicitly detail out in no uncertain terms God's will on this matter. James 1.16 Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. 1 Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Philippians 4.19 in the Amplified, And my God will liberally supply, fill to the full, your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, through the endless eternities of the eternities. Amen. So be it. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life study series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's Word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.